Hey, good morning. Welcome. Wow, look at you. You look great. Glad to uh, invite you, welcome you to Journey Church, and hope you're having a good weekend, and this is the beginning of a good week for you. We're going to dive right in. We're looking at uh, creating significance in our lives, and uh, so let's have a look at the big idea, and we'll just charge right in, all right? Here it is, the big idea. We want our lives to matter, to leave a mark. This God-given hunger for significance is squandered through an unexamined life. Intentional alignment increases our chance to be part of a noble endeavor greater than we could produce individually. Significance is impacting positively something we value. Impacting positively something we value. You might remember a few years ago uh, watching the Olympics, the... uh, the women's gymnastic team was vying after years of underperforming, was vying for the uh, team gold. And it really came down to Carrie Scruggs' uh, vault. But she had a severely in- uh, injured ankle and foot, and uh, the announcers were speculating on how she, would, how she would do, having to run towards that vault with all of her speed, launch herself knowing that at some point she was going to impact the floor. And uh, so we all watched that with some trepidation and anticipation, and she just did it perfectly. She ran, vaulted, shot herself into the air, came down, and you remember that scene where she landed, raised her arms, and then lifted that foot, and the flood of pain cascaded over her face, and her coach came up and lifted her up and carried her off of the platform, but they had won the gold with that. We like that kind of stuff. We like it because it, it connects with a God-given desire to aspire to something significant and noble. I remember being at a fishing retreat with Wally Hilgenberg. Wally Hilgenberg was the, uh, just died a few, few weeks ago at 66 with Lou Gehrig's disease. He was one of the outside linebackers for the Minnesota Vikings during their Super Bowl years and uh, played for Bud Grant. And at this fishing retreat, we were sharing the same cabin. And Wally Hilgenberg began to talk about how it was that he became a Christ follower. And he said it really started at a, at a football game. Uh, he, had, he had a lot of funny stories about how he functioned. He said, if you played for Bud Grant, uh, you were ready when it came time for game time. And so the morning he woke up, game morning. He would spend that whole morning watching cartoons. That's kind of how he got ready for the game. And uh, he went into a game. It was a playoff game. It was at the old Met Stadium down on the south side of Minneapolis in Bloomington. It was an outdoor stadium. By the January and February games, often below zero temperatures, and as the sun would set past the rim of that stadium, temperatures would drop 5 or 10 degrees. Bud Grant didn't allow any heaters on the Viking side, and so those, those behemoths would stand there along that sideline, breathing out air that immediately crystallized into fog, looking like a buffalo from Yellowstone Park. And he said, warm-blooded teams coming from places like L.A. would just begin to shrivel up on the other side. They'd be next to their heaters. Well, they were playing the L.A. Rams for the uh, conference championship, and they won that game. 
He said it was an exciting game. It was close. They went into the locker room at the end, had the interviews, the showers. And then he kind of broke away from the pack, he said, and he walked back out onto that field. As he walked out onto that now empty field, he looked around, and he was struck by this feeling. He said to himself, is this it? Is this all there is? So it was that question, that emptiness drawn by that desire to aspire to something significant that began to draw him down a path towards becoming a Christ follower. I've been reading an article about Sidney Poitier, the uh, black actor, and uh, in it they're interviewing Oprah Winfrey. And uh, Oprah Winfrey tells about a time when she was a, a young black girl living in poverty. She was watching television one night as a child. And it was the night of the Academy Awards. And as she watched, this huge limousine pulled up as they were covering the, the activities outside of the, uh, outside of the auditorium. And as the cameras went, out, went off, the door of the limousine opened and a black man stepped out. It was Sidney Poitier. She said, until that moment, it had never occurred to her that her life could be different than what she saw around her. And at that moment, as Sidney Poitier stepped out of the limousine, she said, I began, even as a child, to yearn for something better than I knew. That is God-breathed. That is how he created us that desire to aspire. And I want to connect three little action steps for you today to give you just some tools to work with as we deal with the personal desire we all carry for significance, that we'll leave a mark, that something we do will matter in connection to something we value. So uh, let's dive into it. Action step number one, determine to possess what you own. Determine to possess what you own. If you aspire to significance and you don't want to squander it, begin now to decide, I'm going to possess what I own. Now, I've uh, put in parentheses the word own because really Scripture says that everything we have, if it's good, it's from God and He has it. It's His. So we read in Psalm 50, For all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills, and I know every bird on the mountains, and all the animals of the field are mine. And if I were hungry, I would would not tell you, for all the world is mine and everything in it. Haggai says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of heaven's armies. James reminds us, whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father. Isaiah tells us all we have accomplished is really from you. So the Lord tells us everything we have that's good is really his. But catch this. He's given you power of attorney over it. Now I have power of attorney for my parents. My dad's about 86 and my mom 83. And uh, I'm able to write checks on their account, move their material possessions around, make medical decisions for them because I have power of attorney. I do not consider my power of attorney a responsibility. I consider it an opportunity, an opportunity to show my parents in the last months of their life 
that they are secure, that they are cared for, that they are safe, and that, the, and that those who are closest to them love them and have their welfare at their heart. Now, just as an example, the Lord has given you power of attorney over a number of things. He's given you power over, of, of attorney over your opportunities. Opportunities come whizzing at you almost every day. And the Lord actually allows you to decide, are you going to use it, squander it, ignore it, treat it with disrespect? I spent a lot of my life looking at opportunities as if they were coins flooding out of a slot machine, that if there was one today, there'll just be one tomorrow. And you know, that isn't always true. Sometimes our opportunities dry up, slow down. So he gives you power of attorney over your opportunities. He gives you power of attorney over your relationships. Am I going to expand them, use them, enrich them, give, give through them? Am I going to increase the quality of them? Or am I going to be so busy that I just can't quite get to them, though I intend to? He gives you power of attorney over your skills and aptitudes. He has created in you a DNA that has a unique blend of skills, abilities, talents, and aptitudes. And then he says, now, I'm with you. He tells us even from the story of of Christmas. He said, I'm with you, and I'll work with you, but you get to choose to what degree you expand, explore, enrich and utilize these skills, aptitudes, talents that you possess. He gives you power of attorney over your material resources, the things that you own. Because now you can own them, you can use them, they can be of value to you, or they can sit around, they can clutter up your life. He gives you power of attorney over your money. Now, here's a a little trick. Learn to possess what you own. The word possess means the ability to integrate something into the rhythm of my life. May I say that again? The ability to integrate something into the rhythm of my life. And as I enter into step one of learning to possess what I own... The fact is that I may own all kinds of stuff that I'm not possessing. I'm not living in my core talents or abilities or aptitudes. I am not living into the highest utilization of my material or financial resources. So I've been trying to teach my kids over the years this little principle. Keep only what serves your purposes or has meaning. Keep only what serves your purposes or has meaning. Um, So, for example, what do you suppose the most popular item to show up at a garage sale is? I'm going to suggest that it is exercise equipment. (laughs) One need not turn into a country music station to hear a lament about broken dreams. (laughs) 
One need only go to a garage sale and see one more once highly anticipated piece of exercise equipment that carried with it a series of dreams usually connected to something about looking svelte and more appealing, healthier, and now usually in a rather disheveled condition, often with pieces laying about it, usually quite dusty, there will be this piece of, of uh, exercise equipment. The fact is that most of us possess way, I, let me say that a different way, most of us own way more stuff than we could ever possibly possess. That we could ever possibly integrate into the rhythm of our life. It just seemed like a good idea once. And now it piles up. So, does something serve a purpose? And second, does it have a meaning? Now, I own some things that really don't have much of a purpose. There's not much utilitarian value, but they mean something. I've got a little... uh, I'd show it to you, but it's in one of our two storage units. I'd... (laughs) Come on now. (laughs) It's a little square piece of granite. I bought it at the Getty Museum in L.A. in one of the most beautiful days I've ever had with my family. The Getty Museum sets up on top of a hill overlooking Santa Monica on a clear day. You can see the ocean. And it is of a spectacular architectural gem. And it has plazas and coffee shops and, and sunken gardens. And it is just, it's almost like a magical place. And our family spent a whole day there once. And I bought this little memento. The stone used to build the Getty Museum was taken from the same quarry in Italy that the stone to build the Roman Colosseum came from. And at multiple levels, I look at that stone and it carries meaning. But the fact is that I can only have so many things that have meaning and so many things that carry purpose. And if I go beyond that, we reach what I call the clutter level. The clutter level means whatever I own starts owning me. Do you own a car? I believe cars are evidence that there is a personal Satan. I hope I buy one and then it does something for me. Instead, it's actually like a two-year-old. Always demanding more attention. And really, almost everything we own has the power to begin to own us. Here's another little principle. If you can't find it, you don't have it. Now, my dad, at 86, just moved into nursing home. He spent 85 years in one address. He lives on the place that his father homesteaded. He never moved. Believe me, when it's time to divest yourself of, yourself of material things, it's a frightening and daunting task. My dad has spent the last 10 years of his life looking for stuff. I said, Dad, if you can't find it, you don't have it. 
clutter isn't just benign. It begins to impede my choices. It starts to detract from my progress. It begins to require attention I could give to other things. For example, we all have closets. I was working in Billings uh, this week, and I took my wife Marcy along, and, and she went shopping. So the longer I worked, the more expensive it got. So we got done. Now, my wife's view of shopping is that it's a recreational activity, and she is lobbying for it to become an Olympic sport. Uh, <laughs> and she has a lot of fun doing it. So here's what happens. I call up at the end of the day. Where are you? I'm at the mall. All right, let's meet. Where should we meet? Says, oh, how about the Christmas tree at the center of the mall? I get there first, and then I see her coming. She has bags. And she's coming towards me, and we banter for a little bit, and then she will say this. Do you want to see what I bought? Now, men, the answer to that question is yes. And so we'll sit down, and she'll start pulling out of these bags. Now, I brought some with me. These are fresh. <laughs> so she'll pull this out like this. She'll say, no, no, I got those brown pair of slacks, and this is just great. And then I will, this is a strategic act. I will lift out the, uh, the price tag, and it'll say thirty nine fifty, and then that's crossed out, and then it says nineteen ninety seven, And I'll say... Oh, you only paid nineteen ninety seven because this will be the next statement. Oh no, no, no! I got this for six ninety eight. Now, at this point, I exclaim, "Man!" <laughs> yeah, I'm not dumb. <laughs> so, so, and then we start going through these, these items. Now, by the time we get to this one, I don't know what this one was to start with, but she got this for $1.58. By this time, I'm apoplectic. I'm almost on the floor. You know, oh, I, I rise up and call her blessed. And uh, I remark on how much money she saved us. And how could I have been so fortunate to find you? I have office hours from 8 to 4. Some of you need to develop these skills. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, if you don't develop a pattern where about every time you buy one thing, you get rid of one thing, you do things like this. See, these clothes here, these are some of mine. Now, this shirt here, I bought this in Key West 15, uh, 15 pounds ago. And, <laughs> Now, you know what we do with these, don't you? See, we keep them in our closet, and they become part of a deceit. That someday, after an especially hectic summer, we're actually going to be at the place we can get in that stuff again. So instead of that, we could just say, you know, every so often I'm going to go through, this is good shape, I'm going to do something creative and helpful, but no, we just... See, we start building clutter into our lives thinking that it's just a benign thing. It's not benign. It actually begins to detract from our ability 
to rise to opportunity, to improve our relationships, to use our material goods for good and redemptively, to be wise with our money, to improve our skills. Here's the principle behind it. What you don't possess, God cannot access. What you don't possess, what you don't build into the, integrate into the rhythm of your life, God cannot access. It's hidden to you, and it's hidden to him. Action step number two. Im- determine to improve what you possess. So I just said, all right, I'm going to keep what I can possess. Now, of what I possess, I'm going to start improving what I possess. Here we have a story that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. He said that he tells us that a master had given his servants each uh, money, and then he left, and he said, I'm going to come back. And then we read this. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. And the servant to whom he had entrusted five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I've earned five more. And the master was full of praise. And he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling these small amounts, so I'll give you more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver, and I've earned two more. And the master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small matter, so now I will give you more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. And then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate, and I was afraid I'd lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here it is. The master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, if you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you at least deposit my money in the bank and I could have gotten some interest there? I can take these things that the Lord has given me power of attorney over and I can decide of those I'm going to possess, I'm going to begin to improve. I once was riding in a pickup with a farmer in eastern Montana. He's a good farmer. And uh, he had just bought a piece of ground. And he drove me by this field. It was a field that was being farmed. And he said to me, it'll take me three years to really get this field up to its producing level. You know what he meant by that? Even though it was already being farmed, he knew that that capacity of that field was greater than it was presently producing. And that by picking the rock and improving the quality of the soil and filling in some of the swales, that he would be able to increase the productivity of that field. And you and I can take what we possess and we can improve its ability to produce. We can improve its ability to serve. I have uh, some friends in Portland, Oregon who gathered their adult children together and said, we're going to keep giving Christmas presents to the grandkids, but none of us want for anything. And so we're going to begin, just as a husband and wife, to invest our presents in helping a family have a full-blown Christmas every year. They'd found an organization that identified families that needed that. 
And two years ago, they found a family that had 12 children. Now, I can't do this justice because what's impressive about it is how demonstrative they get when they start to talk. Now, if you took on a family, you had to buy them winter coats, winter boots, then each a gift, and then provide a meal. Well, they pull into Target with these huge... They actually bought a truck or, or rented a truck in order to carry all this stuff. And Dan went one direction, and his job was to get all the winter coats. Twelve plus two adults, 14 winter coats. She went in another direction to get all the winter boots, 14 pairs of winter boots. Then they had a list, and they worked through all the Christmas gifts. Then they headed to Costco for the, for the Christmas dinner. And the longer they tell the story, the more animated they get. Tickles me to watch them. And they forget whenever I go out that they've told the story, and they tell it to me again. I feel like I should send a Christmas card to the family they helped. See, they decided we're going to take something we've got, and we're going to improve upon it, improve its ability to serve. And it not only serves somebody else, it has had a dramatic impact upon them. The Bible says in Proverbs 11, the generous will prosper. Now, now maybe already you've made a series of bad choices and you think, I don't know that I, I've already squandered opportunities. I've broken relationships. I haven't been using my skills and abilities. It's too late to go to school. I've... You can already imagine a, a host of reasons. What I have is too little. Remember, God always starts with what you have. When Jesus wanted to feed the 5,000, they said, all we got is a little boy with some loaves and fishes. And Jesus said, bring them. It's not the amount. It's the alignment that matters. It's not the amount. It's the alignment that matters. You think, well, I, I, don't, I, I wish I'd have known this sooner. I wish I'd have started sooner. Let me tell you something about bad and good decisions. As I've watched people, here's what happens. Maybe it's about a breaking a relationship or getting involved in something that's toxic to you physically or personally. Or maybe about money and you make a bad choice. But it's just pristine. It sits there all by itself. It doesn't seem to have that much energy. It's just a bad choice. And so you don't pay attention. and You make another bad choice. And you know, it may have a consequence or two. But really, it's just kind of by itself. It doesn't have much ripple effect. And there it is. And then you make a third bad choice. And even yet, it's not catching up with you. And so you make a fourth bad choice. But what you don't begin to feel is the energy that series of bad choices begins to carry internally like a wildfire carrying its own wind. And those bad choices start to pick up steam all by themselves. And almost overnight, you go from, from I think I can manage this, to, whoa, the black horse is out of the barn. It's lurching over the hillside. And you're doing everything you can just to stay on. And you now feel greatly in jeopardy. And you can't figure out what in the world happened. Slowly one bad choice. Slowly two bad choices. Slowly three. And it just starts picking up steam. And when this thing picks up steam. says, I can't believe I got into this much debt. What, how did that happen? I can't believe my relationships just collapsed to this toxic level. 
It wasn't that bad 60 days ago. When it picks up that much steam, it just doesn't seem possible that the way to overcome those bad choices that now are running rampant, that the way to overcome that is simply to go back and to make a good choice. Because that good choice is like that first bad choice. It's slow, isolated, kind of sits there all by itself. You think, that can't overcome this. But you make that one good choice, and then you decide, I'm going to do the next best thing, and you make another good choice, and another good choice. And that series of good choices starts to pick up a momentum of its own, and suddenly that white horse is out of the barn, and you know something? The white horse is faster than the black horse. And if you keep making a series of good choices, that white horse overtakes the black horse and redeems what you squandered. Because the Bible says, I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. And you take what you own and decide you're going to, you're going to possess what you own. And you're going to start improving on what you now possess. And Satan comes along and tries to tell you it's too late with your relationships. It's too late with your money. The little you can do isn't just going to matter. You just start making a series of good choices. And God begins to redeem what you lost in that series of bad choices. Determined to improve what you possess. And if you do that, it leads you to a third. Determined to share what you improve. Because you begin to live out of a, out of a spirit of gratitude. And sharing what you improve involves three things. One, recognizing opportunities for significance. Not squandering those opportunities. Number two, aligning your world to those opportunities. Aligning your gifts, your relationships, your material possessions, your money to those opportunities. And number three, making sure you're involved in something bigger than you. Remember, we're talking about significance. Ted Turner's father told them, no matter what else you do in life, make sure you give yourself to at least one thing that cannot be accomplished in your lifetime. Now, we got a saddle here to illustrate this. This is uh, John Oakland's saddle. John's father died a few years ago and left him a lot of stuff. Um, any son would want to probably keep a few mementos. But you know, you can't keep 280 mementos. I mean, there are only so many mementos that you can keep that actually mean something. Uh, John has some fishing gear. John loves uh, fly fishing. He's got some fishing gear from his father. And it means something to him. But he has this saddle. He and I were visiting about learning to possess what you own. And John says, well, you know, he says, I got, I got this saddle that I got from my dad when he died. I said, well, where is it? Well, he said, I, I, think, it's in the, I think it's in the garage. He told me last night, he said, he wasn't in the garage. So then I didn't know where it is. He said, I started looking around. It was in a box in the crawl space of his house. And uh, 
Remember, what I don't possess, God can't access. So as long as it was out of sight, out of mind, in the crawl space of his house, he couldn't use it, and God can't use it. So he said, all right, I'm going to pull it out, and here is step one. I'm going to make it visible. I'm going to put it in the house somewhere. I don't know. Maybe it'll be in the kitchen. He's cleaned it up. He's got it out. It's visible, and now he can start talking to God about something magical, creative, supernatural. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do with this saddle? It's my saddle. I possess it. I've cleaned it up. I've got it out where it's visible. What do I do with it? John's committed to journey and the light campaigns. And the Lord, do you want me to sell it? Help me get a good price for it. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to watch for opportunities and get a good price. And I give that money to the light campaign. He knows Don Funk, who works around Penn Ministries and works with kids and training horses. He's a, now, Lord, maybe there's a young boy or girl who desperately needs a saddle because they love horsemanship and their parents don't have the money to give them a saddle right now. And Don might come across that person. And Don can say, hey, I know somebody who has a great saddle. There are all kinds of opportunities now for this to create a significant story of the supernatural activity of God. You imagine in a group of this size how many buried stories could begin to surface if we began to possess what we own began to improve it and determine we're going to partner with God in sharing it. And one thing after another becomes an instrument of redemption and blessing and help to your sphere. As long as in a box, in the story, in, in a box in the, under, under his house in the crawl space, It was not real to John. It was not useful to God. It just cluttered his life. And now here it is. And so we're going to ask John maybe to tell us the rest of the story when it starts to unfold. Because this story isn't done yet. We don't know what God's going to do with this. You see, significance begins to come when God starts taking our stuff and multiplying it like the loaves and fishes. Do you imagine when that boy got home? Hello, Johnny, how was your day today? Mom, you wouldn't believe what happened. And he starts to unfold to his mother how that little lunch that she packed became something that fed over 5,000 people. Suddenly, God starts becoming real. significance becomes a part of our life. Now, I'm 58 years old. When I was 56, I knew that I had less years ahead of me than I have behind me. And maybe, if God's gracious, I might have 20 good, productive years up ahead. And I said, Lord, what do I give myself to that actually will have significance? Remember, even with the saddle... It's just little. 
I mean, the world, six billion people in this little saddle, how can that? But when I take the little I have and connect it to a greater venture, it multiplies my significance. So I said, Lord, what? where can I spend the next 20 years of my life where what I'm connected to will have an impact far beyond my lifetime? I read about a man who bought a, bought a lot and he built a house, but he also bought the lot next to him, but the lot was not the kind of lot you could actually build anything on. So he decided he would clear it off and he would plant redwoods. Redwoods he would never see the greatness of in his lifetime. But he knew somebody would sit under the shade of those trees because he planted them. And the reason I'm at Journey, investing my life here, is because I felt this was one place. I've been in the church world all my life. But do you know how many churches in America actually care about those not present? that actually take the command of Christ that we're to go out into the community and believe and trust and share the beauty of God's love with everyone? Only two churches out of a hundred, two out of a hundred in the United States live that way. Journey is one of the two out of a hundred. And my living here is not about enjoying Montana winters. (laughs) I told my wife, moving from Portland, now, now, not to worry, because in these river valleys, it's a much more moderated climate. (laughs) So you remember last year, this last summer when it snowed on June 9th, I woke up one morning and she says, now remember, living here, it's much more moderate in these valleys I live here because, for me, this is where I'm investing the last 20 years to give my life to something that's bigger than I am because I've got this this little pool and I want someone to rest under the shade of something I was part of long after I'm gone. Sidney Poitier journals In his journal, he asks himself difficult questions. When someone asked him why he did it, he said this, because I live with the fear of leaving this world with a permanently unfinished life. God invites you to possess what you have and to improve it and then take that little pool and attach it to something greater than you are. And watch even other generations rest under the shade of what you gave your life for. Would you set your stuff aside as we finish this morning? And thanks so much for being attentive and gracious. I've gone a little longer than I should have and been kind about that. Hey, would you bow your heads with me? And we're going to pray. And we're not going to embarrass anybody. Nobody's looking around. But maybe even during this time, it's come to you that there's a lot of stuff in your life that you own but don't possess. 
God may have gifted you with an incredible mix of skills and aptitudes. And in the race of your busy life, you're watching those shrivel, lie dormant, even die. God's invitation to you this morning is He's inviting you into the significance that He designed you for. And you could transact with Him this morning, right where you are, with your heads bowed, a prayer something like this Lord, I have not been treating with respect. some of what you've given me. Skills and aptitudes, money and material goods, relationships and opportunities. Lord, I'm sorry for that. I don't want to finish my life with regrets, unexplored opportunities, missed occasions, to bring redemption and grace into other people's lives. So, Father, this morning, I want to declare to you I'm examining my life. I want to step into the significance you have for me, made possible through Jesus Christ. to possess what I own to improve what I possess to share what I prove I want my life to matter thank you Lord that you want that too I declare it before you I invite you to help me and to show me how to do it thank you for talking to me today Jesus' name. As we wait just a minute and your heads are bowed and you're praying a prayer, something like that. You're asking God for a fresh start to really possess what He's giving you. If you just honor Him by slipping your hand up this morning and say, I'm talking to the Lord about this today and God's helping me and I just want Him to know it. Yeah, here in the middle, down near the back, all the way up here in the front, over here on my right. Over my left. Yeah. Here we go. Small way here in the back, in the middle. Yeah. Father, thank you for gathering us together today and uh, for letting us play on your team. Lord, we are sorry for squandered opportunities. sorry for not having our eyes open. We're sorry for being so busy we don't see what's in front of us. We thank you for the invitation through Jesus that these may be redeemed by a series of right choices. For these who slipped their hands up this morning, bless grace to them, show them the starting gate, bring people and resources and your insights along to be a help. 
Lord, help us to journey together on this road of significance, impacting things we love for good and for God. In Jesus' name, amen.